Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. Uh, my name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Carmine Campione. It's uh, July 26, 2023. We're at his home in Lake Oswego. Carmine, thank you so much for joining us today. Cool. Yeah. Cheers. Uh, first question, why wine? Tell us your story. Uh, my story is, is kind of bizarre. I mean, um, I grew up in upstate Kentucky, uh, greater Cincinnati area. My mother's one of the three people you could call Betty Crocker. Uh, so I've been uh, analyzing flavors since I was five. And I didn't always answer the, answer the question correctly, you know, which is, you know, when you analyze a cake mix and, the, and you respond with more frosting, it's not quite right. But, you know, the, who can be wrong as a customer, right? So um, <clears throat> anyhow, I, I got out of the military because I got injured. They said I had to get out medical and have a bunch of pins in my spine. And I said, that's not happening. So. Um, I picked up my vehicle in Perfidio, um, which is San Francisco, to go to my, my best friend, my blood brother's wedding. And I could have picked up my vehicle in either place because I was stationed in the Pacific Rim, specifically Hawaii, and I didn't really want to be infantry, but it was a complicated way I actually got to <clears throat> be in Hawaii. Anyhow, so I picked up my vehicle and came here in the, in the late winter of 89. And my sister had married a orchardist who was turned into a vineyardist. So it was at Eola Springs Vineyard that at that time it was called Oak Grove Farms. Um, and we were just pulling out the cherry trees and putting in the first, some of the first Dijon clone Pinot Noirs and Chardonnays in that vineyard in, in that, in that uh, late winter. And uh, I got to try for her wedding and then Subsequently, when I visited with my vehicle, I had to drive back to my station of Kentucky, um, or at least that was the intention. Uh, I just fell in love with the wines here. I was a big red Zinfandel drinker at the, at the time and prior before going into the service, and uh, I just couldn't believe how good these cool climate grapes were. And I realized there was only a few wineries around, and, and people were just kind of figuring it out. So. Uh, they were already selling some fruit because it was already an established vineyard, just very small. Um, uh, and it's 300 some acres. Anyhow, um, I, 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 got, I got involved with uh, uh, Russ Rainey and, and Tom Robinson of uh, Evesham Wood and then and Red Hawk Winery. Um, I got, uh, I have a pretty good palate and I, I wanted to learn from those guys how they were making these amazing wines, specifically uh, Russ Rainey. He was the master because he was trained in France and uh, he just knew how to deal with uh, cool climate fruit extremely well. Um, but my only option was UC Davis and uh, nothing wrong with UC Davis. I adore UC Davis. I very much considered going there. But my issue was, uh, you know, I was going to have to unlearn some things because UC Davis is doing what UC Davis does, which is for their area and that's cool. Um, so I wanted to learn from, from Russ Rainey. Um, and uh, I looked into Evergreen State College um, to do that because you can you can write your own program with them, um, and even it's a liberal arts college, you know. So I was like, okay, what, how am I going to get the, the high high sciences I need? So um, I went to actually a total of six different colleges, including Oregon State, and took my soil science there and plant nutrition with Tim uh, Rigetti, I think it is. And uh, it was like four to seven hundred level 
um, plant nutrition class because I was trying to figure out, again, phenolics, how and other flavors of the wine grapes, how does it work? Because I realized there was a major issue, and I'm definitely a scientist mind, of what does the rootstock do to the fruit stock? Because now that we had phylloxera, um, we were going to have to change those, those vines out. And so we need to know what that meant. And, uh, and so I started going into that. What does the rootstock do to the fruit stock? And after three years of education, I, the answer is nothing. But uh, rootstock's critical for you know, health and vigor. Uh, and that's, I'm not saying that's small because it's not small. Um, but once the vine's established, then the rootstock has no effect. It's just, can it deal with phylloxera? And we didn't know that, you know. Um, I, go, I go to a place with my wine tours, a place called Nisa Vineyards. And that guy also started the same timeline, a really brilliant man, Michael Mega. Anyhow, if you look at the end rows of his vineyard on the top there, his first vineyards, he has all the American rootstock. Because again, we didn't have the college to tell us what works here, or figure out what works here. So we had to do our own research, and that was basically where I went with the whole thing. Um, and uh, I got involved with uh, Red Hawk. I started doing a blending of Grateful Red. I just killed it. I, three years in a row, I got the best buy by, I think it was Wine Enthusiast. I need to look back at my little examples, because um, I've forgotten. It's a long time ago. Um, anyhow, I, I killed it. I got the worst label award three years in a row, and uh, and the best, best buy three years in a row, which was really big. Um, Anyhow, so I just, I, that launched my career because I realized I could do it and do it well. Um, and uh, uh, moved into, you know, other things. But basically, to go back, I, so I got myself a biodynamic viticultural degree um, in 97. And before that, I got a biodynamic winemaking and enology and cellar master degree working there in 94. Uh, those were minors. Um, and again, it's a liberal arts college, so I was getting accreditation as an Oregon resident in, in Washington State to work in the Eola Hills, now Eola Amity AVA. Um, and uh, it, was, it was cool. I mean, uh, I, liked what, I liked what I was doing because I'm all about clean. You know, wine's supposed to be food, and if it's not food, then what the hell are you doing, man? You know, the self-stable stuff. Again, my mother's really that uh, that person uh, that did, you know, invented the buttery flavor Crisco and Pringles and Crest toothpaste and all those wonderful nasty things. Um, but you know, it is what it is. You got to do your own job, and I wanted to do my own thing. And my own thing means I have my own wine line. I mean, that's why a lot of people get involved with it because they want to make their own product. But I didn't have any funding, so. I just continued to be somebody's monkey for quite some time. Um, I went down to uh, Napa to learn from the big boys because you know I understand how it is to pay for education. <laughs> and so I went down there and I was lucky enough to be part of uh, early on in the uh, Maryvale Harlan Estates, which were at the same, at one time, when I was there at the same uh, ownership. They, they parted has, since then, but uh, I was part of the seller team that Produced 50% of the world's 100-point wines according to Wine Spectator back in the last vintage being 96, the other one being 94. And so again, I was like, okay, well, this is pretty neat. <laughs> and um, I just, uh, and that's kind of my story. I just kept going, you know, and now I've got the number one wine tour four different ways currently this year, which is kind of crazy. Um, up for the second time with, uh, was it, uh, USA Today for top wine tour. I won't win because of the popularity contest. The Oregon, what is it, the uh, Napa Valley Wine Train wins every year. And they're not even a wine tour, so that doesn't make sense. But Lux Life Magazine gave me the top wine tour of the year. And uh, was it uh, Corporate Livewire uh, has given me uh, their top wine tour operator, Pacific Northwest and Best Wine of Life, 
Willamette Valley wine tasting experience. And that's all current. You don't apply for those things. So that's, that's basically my story and what, what I'm all about. I mean, it's still about doing it clean. It's still about doing it biodynamically. You know, I, I definitely believe a few things that uh, I think the textbooks and some of our students are being trained in, incorrectly about, you know, the, uh, the soil being doing this and the soil doing that, and that's just ridiculous. Now, there's no question that's true for the first 10 years until the wine grapes are established because, again, health and vigor is huge, and that totally impacts flavor, uh, but the rootstock itself doesn't. So what you need to do is you need to make the happiest rootstock, whatever that is. If you've got a wet place or a dry place or an acidic place or a basic place, get the best rootstock, whatever the hell that is. If you want an earlier ripening rootstock, great, get that. But it doesn't have any influence other than health and vigor. And, and this idea of concentrating the fruit by dropping Grapes is absurd. That's just absurd. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard, and I've been hearing it for 35 years. Um, you know, either the grapes are ripe or they're not ripe, and that's my opinion, of course, and I'm totally 100% positive in my head. Um, you know, and I don't, I'm not against dropping fruit, but the only reason why you drop fruit, in my opinion, is to balance the vineyard. And that's it. There's nothing more than that. Balance the vineyard. Make sure you get all your fruit. They're going to ripen at the same time. Do a foliar spray. Do a, a biodynamic spray. So do a pre-digested spray so you can chelate. Because as everybody knows or should know, that you know, the only thing that plants eats the sun and nothing but the sun. So help me sun, you know, kind of thing. But they have an external digestive system. So that means in the canopy and in the rootstock. So you need to have those those micro and macro nutrients in that slurry for them to properly process the, the photosynthetic material. And of course, grapes slough 60% of the roots every year. So um, that's the reason why these incredibly, unbelievably amazing, fertile, deep soils of Willamette Valley is, is just bizarrely great in this cool climate. And that's why we have the Scott Henry trellising system, which no other place in the world has, because no other place in the world has topsoils of 50 plus feet. I mean, just what? Um, so we actually have to ask them to do more tonnage or they won't produce fruit because they're making too much you know, ammonia in the decomposition process. And again, I think these are some things that people are just now starting to figure out, but I've been working off for, for a long time. Um, and that's kind of my, dig, my gig, you know. So a lot to unpack there. We'll come back to a lot of it. Um, let's talk a little bit about life sort of before wine. You mentioned gr growing up in, in the Cincinnati area. Uh, tell me about um, kind, of grow, uh, kind of early life and upbringing and where you headed after high school. Yeah, well, um, Initially, I wanted to get into hybrid fish farming. I always wanted to be a farmer. I love farming. Um, and I went to Bowling Green State University to do that, which is like the, at the time it was the number two marine science place in the United States. And it's the middle of Ohio. Uh, and I just couldn't get into the fact that I was going to be doing it in tanks. So that's why I did the lay entry program. Um, to thinking I was going to do a career military thing, um, and I wanted to get to college, and so I actually was supposed to be CID, but we had a 14 kegger with no bathrooms, and there was a lot of us that got tickets by those campus cops. It disallowed my 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 uh, my two dollar two year delay program. That's how I became infantry, and I actually told the guy, he says, "Man, I'm not taking any of these options for you know jobs because they're just nothing I want to do." And I said, "I'll take I'll only take any of that stuff that guarantee me Hawaii." So I was part of the four, first cohort unit. My um, in my orders, which are supposed to be gospel, um, it says I'm a Blue Beret because we were the first battalion size um, cohort unit, which is not a really good term. First word is cohesion. Mm -hmm. So you start out the same day, you finish the same day. All of my uh, cadre were all airborne and, and ranger qualified. And then we were all just, you know, privates of E1 to E3. Um, we never got issued that Blue Beret, but uh, 
you know, supposedly first first grouping of that. But uh, they were saying there was going to be some jealousy amongst the brigade, and that that's cool. Um, whatever, it didn't matter. But the difference there was kind of interesting because we were the only battalion that was not allowed on the um, trails, and everybody else wasn't allowed off the trails. So we lost seriously about. 45% of our guys uh, to injury, me being one of them. Mm -hmm. I, I finished my term. Um, the other guys didn't finish their term. That was about 40%. But um, anyhow, it wasn't though I wanted to finish my term, or finish a term for that matter. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, because mm -hmm. light infantry means heavy. It means you do not get reinforced. It means you, every time you deploy, you have 10 days of food and ammunition. And that's a 93-pound pack without ammunition. And ammunition could be up to 40 pounds. So that's just insane, particularly when you're not on a road or a trail. <laughs> it's just wrong. <laughs> so coming out of the military then, um, as you're sort of deciding to pivot, sort of pivoting and figuring out, um, tell me about initial impressions of Oregon when you got here. Well, I couldn't believe it. I was, I was blown away. Uh, I'm an outdoorsman and I live to fish. I live to be outdoors. And uh, I, I've never gone fishing that I didn't have some type of injury from uh, bug bites, uh, spiders, you know, did I get bit by a snake or close, you know, what did that mean? And here I go out fishing and I don't even see mosquitoes. If I do, it's a couple of them, I shoo them off and away I go. And I'm catching fish I want to catch. I mean, just instead of going, you know, okay, well, it's a bass, well, I don't know if I want to eat it because it's, you know, got this agricultural runoff from the tobacco field that <laughs> could make me green. Um, but uh, I just, I couldn't believe how wonderful uh, this temperate climate was. I just, it still blows me away today. I mean, I eat breakfast and dinner outside of, virtually every day and rarely do I see anything but a, a occasional hornet. And, and so I just put out hornet traps today. I mean, just no problem, because now they're just, they're in their second cycle and they're just doubled their population or more uh, recently. But yeah, I love Oregon, just adore it. It couldn't be nicer. Uh, I've been, uh, it's, been very interesting to watch it uh, get warmer later because when I first started, everybody, I told everyone that, that you know we harvested the first week to second week of October, and now everybody's like, well, it's the second week of September. Now, granted, last year and this year we're way behind, so we're back to you know first week of October. But the climate's been very clearly adjusted. So tell me about your first impressions of the the work of wine as you started to work with Russ and, and others. What, what what attracted you to working with wine? Oh, well, it, again, I'm, I'm a farmer uh, and a scientist, and so it's the only thing you can sell direct, and it's the only thing that's more valuable with age, except for your spouse, maybe. Um, you know, so it's just, it's just lovely, and if you don't sell it this year, sell it next year, and then, you know, get it more balanced and up to, you know, basically 10 years, even with your whites, particularly in this area. I mean, it's just amazing because of this, this cool climate, this amazing acidity that's not needing to be added in with the, the citric acids and so forth. I mean, it just naturally will age because those, when you impart, at least I believe so, if when you when you put in acids instead of them being naturally based, um, they just fall out of solution. So they, they just don't age well. And these age amazingly. I've had uh, Dennis um, Childs, gosh, I don't know his last name, Al, the owner, him and Elaine um, of Yamhill Valley. I've tried some of their 85 Pinots recently. And it's like, oh my God, they're amazing. They're 85. Are you kidding me? It's a Pinot, you know, in a, in a, in a quark. It's wow. And uh, just really amazing uh, longevity on these wines. And of course, they, they taste very wonderful early as well. You mentioned all your all the education experiences you had. Tell me about um, biodynamics specifically. What caused you to kind of go down that road and what did you, what did you take away from biodynamic education? Well, I had to go clean. I just, I, I believe, first of all, food should be food. 
uh, very much against a homogenized, hydrogenated, anything shelf-stable. If, if, if a bacteria can't eat it, it's not food, it's poison in my opinion. So, we, you know, without dogs and without grapes, we would have got the Darwin Award as a species a long time ago. Um, and so I just want to be able to continue that reality of, of human existence with real food and, uh, and not destroy our land base like grapes don't need anything to continue forward. And if you have a, you know, an imbalanced vineyard, then one of the things that I love about biodynamics is a foliar spray application. And so some of these places that now have phylloxera and are, and are own rooted are going to biodynamics because of necessity, uh, because now it's chelatable and, and uh, because you're getting a pre-digested uh, you know, spray, and, and, and my sprays are typically, if I spray, which I don't need to spray once they're established, but if they're struggling or if you have imbalance of a drier area or wetter area or, you know, lower um, depth of soil or different types of soil, anyhow, if you want to balance with a foliar spray, you only need to spray once, maximum twice a year, and I use about five gallons per acre, you know, and that's a heavy spray. I mean, that for me, that's a heavy spray. Um, you can be much less than that. I've gone as little as a, a gallon per acre of foliar spray versus, you know, when you use regular organic or whatever you want to call fertilizer, you're using a cup per vine. I mean, it's, <laughs> that's, and then it's salts. And so you may get more, you may get more, um, you know, tonnage, but it's the Michelin man. You just, dilution is the solution, and that's not correct. And don't put it out in your land base because in my opinion, well, actually fact, there's only two places in this nation that actually has water that's actually replenishing our groundwater and that's in Maine and, and the Olympic National Forest or up there, you know, the rainforest. Everything else is depleting as we go. So those salts are accumulated on top and, and that's just not proper. And yeah, maybe that's good for keeping some ground cover down, but I still don't think it's proper. <laughs> you know, let's keep it clean, let's keep it right, let's keep it balanced. And I think really grapes are the way, easiest thing possible on the, on the planet to have a perfect ecosystem because there, there's no nasty residue or shouldn't be any. I've never buried a horn, but I've buried you know, stainless steel containers to get the inoculum to then ferment my, my fermentation sprays. And then you adjust how, what fermentation spray based on, you know, real science of taking the, peta, uh, the, the leaf to be analyzed or however, and, and see if you know, you're short of boron, which is a normal thing to be short of boron uh, or whatever. But uh, it's, just, it's just simple, it's clean, there's no residue, and it's just I, just, I don't see any other proper option. And it's cheap, I mean, really. I mean, gosh, can you only doing five gallons an acre on a heavy spray versus all that 16, 16, 16, ugh. And what is the inert thing? That bothers the hell out of me, too, oh my God. You know, because show me something inert that you want to put in your grandchild's coffee or something. I mean, holy Christ, no. It, uh, I, did a, I did a biodynamic study um, also up in, a, in Elma, Washington. And <clears throat> we're converting, the idea was to convert some badly managed blueberries back to natural. And so I had some pristine ground where I planted new blueberries, or they had just planted new blueberries actually. And so I tried to get them back, and basically the answer was it takes about 10 years just for living systems to balance back out. I mean, then minimally. Um, and that's just a long time. Um, so don't, don't screw it up in the first place is, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, and it was very obvious how different it was. And with foliar sprays, you could kind of power through that a little bit because you're not having to exclusively deal with just the soil. You can deal with the canopy. Um, and then you can kind of hobble it through while you continue to produce until you get the, the soil back to balance again. So I wanna, I'm curious about, uh, we, we, you, you had talked obviously about, about Russ and, and Tom and kind of getting, kind of getting, cutting your teeth working with them. What was your, what was your initial role working with them? What did you, what did you 
sort of hands-on experience? What, what was important to you? Uh, well, I drove past the, uh, the vineyard there because of new ownership, really amazing owners there at Red Hawk now. Um, and I pointed, I said, I put in that vineyard in the early 90s, you know. Um, and so it's, it's nice to, to see that kind of stuff. I put in a lot of vineyards, you know. I, I worked with David Avery down in, in Napa Valley and, and got paid hundreds of dollars to put PVC pipe together. It's just absurd sometimes. And then, of course, here, I don't think I've ever made more than about 10 bucks an hour, you know, working for these guys. But uh, it's been a labor of love. I, I, just, uh, I just love it. And I love the fact that I can go through and just go, I, I put in that. You know, and then of course you taste the wine from it, and you're like, "Wow, that's so cool, right?" And uh, it's 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 wonderful, because I mean, really, in my opinion, the greatest day on the planet is family with food and wine, and wine makes the wine t food taste better, and vice versa. And you know, if you can in increase the quality of time with your mother, holy Christ, heck yeah, heck yeah, sign me up, man. Uh, in terms of putting in vineyard and doing that kind of work, uh, how did you learn it? How how did you know what you needed to do? Well, uh, you know, I didn't. Um, it was just what we thought was proper. I mean, if you look around the trailing systems today, um, I mean, you go someplace like White Rose and they've got a trellising system that I'm not kidding when I tell you it's nine, 10 feet tall. And you know, and other people are doing spur prune and other people are doing, you know, cane prune. And then you got, of course, Scott Henry with a double cane, you know, and so it's still not figured out. There's lots of people like myself with huge opinions about it, but uh, you know, it's still a, a new industry. Um, and it's, it's brilliant to be part of the conversation, although I think we actually have to have the conversation. We're not having enough of the conversation because I think we need to label the freaking bottles correctly. It's just absurd because you know we're the most effective state when it comes to labeling, and that's a really low bar at 90% correct, and that's only a few of our varietals. And so when I say white or red Willamette Valley, we don't know what the hell that is. And so I understand why we're putting on the, the thing on the label, but then let's actually make it truly what's in the bottle. You know, because I, again, I do wine tours, so I have these people that'll say, oh, I like this or that, and I'll go like, I've never tried that, so I'll go to the store because I like wine, I'll buy it, you know, I'll drink it, and I taste it, and I go, it doesn't taste like Pinot, because I'm tasting the Merlot, and I'm tasting the Syrah, and it's like, it's not Pinot-centric, and I, I'm not against blends. I freaking love blends. My best wine I think I've ever made is this one right here. It's just absolutely amazing, um, and it's a blend. Um, you know, it's, it's, I'm not against blends, but if you're gonna put the name on the bottle of Pinot or whatever it is, then it should be that grape. It should taste like that grape from that area, of course, of that vintage and all these things that supposedly it's all about. So I think we really, really need to have that conversation and continue to push forth and, um, and get proper labeling. When is it labeled? What's in it? Is there residual sugar? Because this garbage, of it's, it's, it's dry when it's still got 2% residual sugar because we can't taste less than 2% supposedly. Mm -hmm. But now it destroys my food and it destroys the other wine because it's got residual sugar and it doesn't age well. So that means it's not really the right thing. And that's not cool. So just let's just label it properly. Mm -hmm. That's my opinion. Tell me about other other sort of uh, work you've done around the Oregon wine industry. Who, el who else did you work with? What other vineyards did you put in? And what were some of the kind of the stories and projects from the, that time? Yeah, I, I did a lot um, of, of people, and I helped a lot of people out. Uh, I was uh, before uh, Stanglin uh, was uh, was a place I used to buy his fruit, mm -hmm. and so I was original his consulting. I'll see Larry Miller today. Really, really nice guy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I worked with Domaine Serene to put in that new brilliant $20 million tasting facility. That's just gorgeous. It was really wonderful to see that transition happen. That was a challenge. Um, 
And then down in Napa, you know, again, I worked for some neat places. Uh, Vinecliff was was a place I really, really quite enjoyed because they own the majority of the Upper Oakville um, grade up there, as they call it. And uh, that's kind of neat to have the work for the you know, really the wealthiest in the va in the valley that are privately owned uh, and not full of marketing hype, not trying to make up Fubé Blanc or some other insane word that doesn't exist. Um, but, um, you know, it's it, just, gosh, there's so many eccentricities. And, of course, just being somebody's monkey and not making a lot of money, I did travel around quite a lot because I kept trying to, you know, make a little more money or do a little this or a little that. And I may have stayed actually in in Yauntville, except my 99-year uh, lease was broken by the owner dying, and the kids went to liquidate. So I bought a property up here and came back to what I consider home, and I've considered Oregon home ever since I got out of the service. My first adult decision was to move to Oregon. So. Let's talk about your own. You obviously, you mentioned you worked for a lot of other people. Tell me about starting your own thing. Uh, what did, what sort of inspired you to start making your own wine, and how did you go about the process of doing it? Well, you probably guessed it already. I'm eccentric and opinionated, so um, I, I wanted to do something. And I didn't I didn't bring it out here, but I should have brought it out here. I wasn't thinking that clearly. Um, I I wanted to see other things. What can be done? Um, like I, I started with my first wine line of 2002, a Madeira. 100% Pinot Noir Madeira, and uh, I'm releasing that this week. Uh, it's in a, you know, the, the classes Tortuga bottle, um, you know, 16 and a half years in barrel, and I just wanted to do that. And you can't do that with somebody else's uh, unless they're willing to do it. And so I could learn everything I could learn from the other people by doing what I already wanted to do or what they were doing. But I couldn't do something like, like this Pinot Noir here, which was 54 months in oak, and actually it was 60 months because classic poor man problem. I made the label and didn't afford to bottle it right away. But the six, five years, five years in, in barrel, I mean, you know, what does that taste like? And, and why do you want to do it? Because nobody can afford it because we have this horrible tax laws. And anyhow, uh, and you got to make money back. Well, I still haven't started selling this again this week. But, you know, 60 months in barrel, holy Christ. But why would you want to do that? The answer is because I love aged wines. And this tastes like a 10-year-old bottle of wine. And nobody's willing to do that unless I do that underneath my own label, because who would risk that and who can afford that? But part of contracts, a lot of times when you're the vineyard master, cellar master, whatever, winemaker, is that you can have a little piece of, of the action. In other words, you can you can co, uh, you can get a, um, a contract to, because I, I have a winery license, I, I can get a contract to make my wines wherever. And so basically the answer is because I wanted to do things like this miracle, which is, you know, you got uh, Pinot Noir and Tempranillo and Viognier and Gamay Noir, and I sold out of it at $126 a bottle, and I think it should be three times that price because it's just the best blend I've ever tasted in my, in my life from cool climate. And again, who's going to allow me to do that? So this is 100% one fermenter, whole cluster, and just divine. But again, the answer is because I wanted to do it my way. What about your kind of experiences at that point made you want to try these specific projects? What, why, why, why sort of the aging oak wine? Why the blend that you tried? What, what had you sort of seen that made you think these would work? I had enough uh, time on target and education and just basically, again, time on target um, to know it would work. Um, and then what did that look like? I've never tasted a, a wine that's been in barrel for more than two years before. You know, I've never tried, you know, a, a field blend uh, of 100% whole cluster of that way. And, and it was just, it was kind of a miracle at work. That's the reason why it was a self-named bottle. Um, you know, and then I, I have, uh, like in this one here, the Syrah from the Chemeketa Vineyard. I mean, delicious. 12-3 alcohol, though. 12 
you know, 12-3, Syrah. But again, Rhone's on the 45th parallel, so it's totally reasonable to do a Syrah in this area. It's just they're kind of different, <laughs> and they, they typically throw sulfur, and so it was really a very difficult wine to make. It was my hardest wine I've ever made, actually, was that Syrah. It was crazy because I had to keep aerating it, which is just weird to me. Uh, but that's what it requires. So it's just that was a winemaking technique that I was learning as I went. But again, I knew enough to go, this is getting reduced, so I need air. You know, and, and so it, it's just uh, just being around and, and, and having somebody else, you know, pay me to get educated. Uh, and again, the inspiration to do something on my own that, that's not being done. Uh, I do a Gamay Noir, lovely. Uh, and then the other big thing is nobody does Oregon Oak. I mean, a couple of people do it, but that's my thing. I didn't do it in this one because I, was, I thought those, those barrels were neutral, but holy Christ, there's a lot of oak in that because they weren't really neutral. Um, but you don't, and you notice that after about three years, you go, holy Christ, where'd all those oak come from? You know, well, it's a barrel. Um, so, um, but yeah, Oregon oak, I, it's, I love the Gary oak. I mean, I think the phenolics, I'm sorry, the, the vanilla in of it is just is tremendous. Uh, and if you can do everything locally, then let's do everything local. Let's own our own area. Let's do our own oak. Let's, let's, we don't need to sit there and put on airs and act like we're French. I think we've totally proved that by now, you know. So let's, uh, let's do our own thing. And if Oregon oak is cool, which it is, it's phenomenal, let's play. You know, let's let's just because we're we're killing it. So let's just go to the next level and kill it on every level. Let's let's be eccentric. Let's let's be our own people, um, because we're going to be, and uh, and the corporations are coming in and they're going to write what this is. Because one of the things, as you may know, uh, is we've had a assertive effort not to assert Oregon here, um, and so we don't have anything that the, the public knows in Florida. They don't understand what Oregon is. But they're about to hear about it from all the guys that have bought. And I understand that maybe as much as 70% of our current production is now corporate owned, which when I started, there was zero. As a matter of fact, probably 10 years ago, there was basically zero. And now it's like, what? And so they're, about to, they're about to start the conversation. So unless we have people like myself and others that are willing to go, you know what, the Oregon oak, the Gary oak has value. And let's grow some for silver culture. Because look what France has done. They still have these, all these great forests of France because they realize there's value in those trees. And, and here, because we don't grow them as trees, you know, they spin and they make very expensive barrels. I mean, they're insanely expensive. Um, you know, that's the reason why I really can't even afford them because they're like, Last I looked, there were $1,450 a barrel, you know, um, and that's just, and you can't reshave them like you can an American oak or a French oak because, again, they're, they're, they're just kind of not very straight grain, and I think the vanilla is delicious, but, uh, you know, you can't, you can't order your coffee wrong. So if, if you think that's the wrong type of vanilla in, then, then of course, the consumer's right. I, I totally don't think that's the wrong type of vanilla, and you may not be used to it, but, again, if we continue to be our own selves, then this can be a reasonable thing instead of going, that's just weird. Um, because delicious is delicious, and, and that's, that's all it should be. I do a Pinot Gris that's done in Oregon Oak, and um, I, I just think it's lovely, but, it, but I shouldn't have labeled it Pinot Gris. I should have labeled it just a white wine because it doesn't emulate what most people think of a Pinot Gris because I went too eccentric on it and labeled it what, what, what it is. But uh, it's 97% Pinot Gris, 3% Viognier, but anyhow, uh, it's too perfect. It's too nice, but it doesn't emulate Pinot Gris that people think about here, so I only got an 87 rating on it from the wine enthusiasts, which I think is absurd because it should have been 97. I absolutely adore it. I just can't think it could be any better in any way. Um, but 
again, you know, it's, you expect, you know, as you know, when you go into a restaurant and you order a, a Chardonnay, it better be oaky buttery here in America. But there's zero oak and there's zero butter in a Chardonnay, none. So, but the customer's always right. Just like Gewurztraminer and Riesling's not sweet, but here in America it better be because California's been the only game in town and you as a customer want to order your coffee, right, or in this case your wine, and expect what you expect. Um, and so, uh, I don't know exactly what I'm trying to say other than it's nice to work with the local stuff and do it to its nth degree. And that's what I'm all about. How did you learn winemaking? Again, really, uh, Russ was my inspiration. And then I have two winemaking degrees from colleges. Um, the second one being recently at Chemeketa because I wanted to learn what I didn't learn, you know, after all those years because I started again way back in the late 80s, early 90s. And so, and in 2020, shoot, I don't even remember now. I have to look. Uh, <laughs> but anyhow, I was like, I had the option to go back and get myself a second degree there in uh, Chemeketa College in uh, 2016 and 2017 just to figure out what's new, new in the zoo kind of thing. And um, yeah. But most of it, you know, like, like my mother getting flavor chem, it's a seven year apprenticeship. You know, so you learn from learning. I mean, it's hard to explain the color. It's hard to explain flavors, right? And then it's hard to explain how they go together. So as soon as you have more than one factor, it's impossible to calculate, right? Um, so it get, you get a lot of, you know, intuition and craftsmanship and, uh, you know, personality and, of course, opinion and, and, and so forth. So, again, that's kind of the craftsmanship. But you have to get the basic knowledge and the basic fundamentals. But as you know, you know, like if there's anybody that has a formulative winemaking style, they're probably not a good winemaker. It's okay to have an idea, a directive, a mission, but if you're formulative, you're wrong, in my opinion, because every year the grape's going to be a little different. And so you can have an idea of what you're planning, but then you have to be fluid in what you go, oh, well, it's a little more acidic, a little less acidic, you know, we had the smoke, we had the whatever, and so therefore make the adjustments and be fluid allow the vintage to show through. Again, that's why I like the word possess, because it needs to be possessed of its own thing. I mean, you know, and, and that's also why I, little, I did the little goddess with the spelled wrong, because, you know, I think, you know, I'm God, I don't believe God being a male or female. I'm not trying to start another conversation. But, you know, it's goddess, you know, and I think that's a very cool word in that way, um, because I do think there's, there's, you know, a higher situation, and let's play to that. Let's just go for that. Let's just be that. Let's 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 be God s. Uh, let's not be God. Let's not think about God. You know, I'm just saying. Let's be God s, right? And so, it's a it's a cool idea. I think you can only take it positively. Hopefully, um, and yeah, that's why I did it. So as you were as you were starting to make wines, and you were getting both the kind of the real education and the and the uh, on the job training, um, tell me about just developing the style. What kind of what is your winemaking style? What did you want to do, and how long did it take you to feel comfortable? I don't think I have a, a straight winemaking style. I think that's probably um, my strength and my weakness, um, because I I just I'm bizarre. I mean, I just I like to push the envelope, and uh, you know I have, I have two rosés, one being a, a orange. Um, I should have brought all my display out, but um, you know orange wine, so Pinot Gris done as a red. Um, in my wine tours, I like to share, again, the phenolics of what the skins and seeds bring to the wine. Because, of course, most people come here for Pinot Noir, which, again, as you know, is the least ripe seeds of a ripe red grape. And so we do cold soaks, which you don't do other places, because we're trying to, you know, uh, get that, that beautiful tannin 
a little more mature, just like this Vichy cooks the fish, so does the cold soak kind of cook the seed. And of course, lots of people like coffee, like myself. And you know, there's wonderful things to be had for that tannin. And of course, tannin holds uh, some flavor and has flavor itself and holds color. And I don't believe in color additives. I think that's disgusting. Um, I don't believe in adding anything to wine. I think it's wrong. But anyhow, um, you know, so having that little riper seed a little further along, you're going to get a darker, darker wine and, and some other nice things. So I, I like to share people what, what the seeds and skins bring to a wine and then share them side by side with my Pinot Gris and my Pinot Gris rose, uh, orange wine. And, and, and it's a rarity to, to actually have the exact same everything side by side. Uh, and I think it's really hard, particularly for non-professionals, to analyze red wines. And for that matter, it's hard for me to analyze red wines when they're young because there's just so much you know, tannin obscuring the minutes. Um, and white wines are, are a little bit easier to discern. And of course, they come around quicker because they don't have as much you know, tannin. They don't need as much time to you know, kind of balance out. How long did it take you to feel, to feel comfortable making these kinds of decisions and understanding these kinds of the, the, the science going on? That's a good question. Uh, I don't know when I felt comfortable doing it. Um, <laughs> I guess I felt comfortable as soon as I, I failed a couple of times and realized where, that, where those places were, what, what failing meant. Once I realized what failing meant, I realized what not failing was. Um, and so <laughs> I would say that's pretty early on because uh, Tom um, Robinson of Red Hawk was a uh, brilliant man in a lot of ways, but uh, he didn't spend a lot of money on barrels early on. So we had a lot of bad barrels. And, uh, and so I got to see a lot of bad wine happen. And, uh, and as buying for uh, the, the label within the Red Hawk label of Grateful Red, I was able to go around to a lot of early producers um, and taste you know, their flaws and their, their good things. And so I did a lot of barrel samples because I bought everything they didn't want and put in Grateful Red and sold it for $7.50 full retail at Ross and made a killing. Um, because again, it was stuff they didn't want as long as I could put it together. Um, it was great. So basically, I guess my answer would be you know, fairly early on because I, I got to see the, the other issues. And, I, and, I, and, and people ask me on my wine tours, you know, um, what, um, you know what, what's a good wine or, 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 or what's a bad wine? I, I say, you know, when I was a kid, I'd go to a, a winery and I'd like two out of ten wines. And now if I don't like all ten, I go, what's wrong with you? You know, because we've got the technology not to screw it up. We know what a bad barrel can be, and a bad barrel happens. I mean, it's going to continue to happen, even if they're brand new. But, you know, you should detect that early on and get rid of that, or however you're going to do it, sell it to some other bulk label and, and just shouldn't have the issue. Uh, granted, it's going to still happen because there's lots of unforeseen things of, you know, somebody did something improperly. Um, but uh, yeah, to me, it's pretty, pretty clear and straightforward anymore. Uh, again, the most important thing I believe is, you know, uh, what we're still planting and as balanced as possible in your wines. I mean, we now know plug and play what to plant. You know, when I put in uh, at the Isle of Springs Vineyard, uh, 113, 114, 115 Dijon clone Pinot Noir, I mean, nobody does a 113 anymore. I only know one guy that likes the 114. We're still planting the 115, so, I mean, I'm glad we're here, you know. Um, and the Pomard clone, we, we killed that. That's why that's the original clonotypes. It's still got a few unrooted ones there in the Dundee Hills and such. Um, and we're still planting Pomard Club, but, that, but because Pinot Noir fractures fairly heavily, it's got an odd set of chromosomes, you know, you seriously have 12 different Pomard clones you can buy from a nursery uh, thing because it, it fractures again. Uh, and it's great to have these, these clonal types that are, you know, 
virus-free and so forth. Uh, and so we've just come a long way. Again, we should be able to plug and play. I worry about Pierce's disease. Everybody worries about, you know, all these, these, these translocatable diseases. But basically, you should be able to succeed. So as you were setting up, setting out to make your own wine, tell me about vineyard sourcing, obviously biodynamic. Uh, what, what were you, how did you find grapes to make the wine and how have you sort of developed relationships with, with sort of your suppliers? <laughs> I'm too broke to have any suppliers right now. I got to start selling some wine. Um, so I don't have any suppliers. I have nothing in the mix at the moment. Uh, I still have a lot of barrels in storage, so there you go. But they're, they're, I'm worried about uh, them coming back to be hydration oval. Um, so the answer is, you know, there's really no bad ground here in, in, the, in the Willamette Valley. Um, I, we'll see what the valley floor does. There's been people that are doing valley floor stuff, and right now I'm against valley floor exclusively because you're going to have more fungal problems due to just the marine layer and different things. And so I always believe if you can avoid having things that have their their some type of you know fungicide, then do it. So put it on the hill. Uh, so I'm against again valley floor stuff. We'll see what happens. Again, the problem with the valley floor, in my opinion, is is is, is not only just that marine layer, but uh, you know you have more watery areas there, and the drainage is a little different. And, and uh, I just I, the, the hills again can still have a spring, but it's just not natural, normal. There's some out there for sure, but uh, I think the hillsides have always been a better choice. So so we'll see, but. Everywhere we have here, it's great. And again, you know, it's all the phenolics are a daily situation. It, it's not about the rootstock; it's about the the season. That's the reason why this vintage tastes different than that vintage, and it always will because it's always a different vintage. And again, it happens on a daily basis. So, um, we have the perfect weather here, as long as we continue to get these these wonderful, perfect grape growing situations. We're going to continue to have just unbelievably good wines. And I think we could have made every, every single year since I've been in this business the greatest wine on the planet, period, bar none. You know, it's just a matter of did, you, did everything work correctly? And in my, my opinion, the winemaker's job is not to screw up the fruit because you can't be better than the fruit. Um, so, and of course, the vineyard is, is that, that's the key is to get it all ripe at the same time. And so there's a lot of challenges, but I don't, I don't see any restrictions of why we can't be the very best every single year here. And, and even in the valley floor, again, I'm not advocating that, but uh, we'll see. I mean, it's just how do you utilize them, I think, is the key. Uh, maybe that was the question. Um, you know, we've, we've learned so much. I, I saw down in, uh, down in southern Oregon, at the end of the, the, around Eugene, not southern Oregon, but, you know, uh, south Willamette Valley, these people planting pl grapes I would never consider. But then I realized they're higher elevation and they get different aspects. I was like, Oh, and this is where we've come. We've come to, okay, well now what aspect and what elevation and the microclimates, because we now have all this GIS and AGS, you know, arc systems, you know, and so you can really microclimate out and it's, uh, it's just brilliant. We're going we're gonna to keep on doing great things. We have so much pristine ground to work with. We don't have to do, like I was talking about with the, uh, you know, the, uh, trying to get the, 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 the living system balanced again, because the only thing that's, that's out in those trees I should say out in those hills or maybe some tree farms, which pretty clean. Um, and that's nice to start out with a pristine situation. So again, you shouldn't be able to screw it up. Now we'll see about, you know, the red blotch and, and the other things that, that might be translocatable and see how that works. But hopefully um, we'll, just, we'll just take from what we've learned and apply and it sh I don't see any restrictions. Tell me about the, obviously, the hospitality side of the industry for you. Obviously, you're, you mentioned wine tours. Um, how did that become part of, part of what you were doing? Again, being a broke joke, <laughs> um, you know, I, 
<coughs> I, my, 80, my 85 um, Cadillac was given up the ghost. And I still have my 1986 Forerunner in the garage over here. And so I was like, okay, well, <clears throat> I need to have something other than the 85 Cadillac that I'm starting not to trust anymore to move my wine. Plus, it doesn't carry pallets, right? And so I looked into vehicles to do wine tours that I could also use to move my barrels and so I got a trailer hitch on my $55,000 minivan that's also in the garage and so you know now everybody's in leather that I can take those out and and put in cases of wine or whatever I need to do so um, anyhow that's how it started it was simply I just needed a vehicle and I thought well god who doesn't want to be with a winemaker and kind of a pioneering guy so you know I know I know the backstory why that how that when that guy's dog died kind of stuff and so it's nice to have the backstory you know, I went to a place I hadn't been to but twice in the last, well, three times in the last three years. And uh, I talked to the owner. I says, hey, man, how you doing? I said, ah, I haven't seen you in a long time. I says, yeah, last time I was here as an assistant winemaker. He's like, whoa, that was a long time ago. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just been that long. We even forget, forget the roles. And it's, it's just, it's a wonderful thing. So as you started that, that part of the business, tell me about, Sort of developing what you wanted, what you wanted to showcase, and finding finding clients and starting the tour business. Well, um, thanks to having all these crazy accolades of winning these, uh, you know, top wine tour things in our nation and area and so forth, uh, I've been I've been doing fairly good. I don't think I have 50 reviews yet, which I really would like to have. Um, but that's it. It's just simply people are finding me on Google. They're finding me through Willamette Valley Wineries Association, which is doing a good job of promoting some of the associates, members, and so forth. Uh, that's Wine Tour yesterday found me that way. Uh, I'm also on TripAdvisor. Um, and so that's, that's exclusively my marketing, pretty much. I mean, it's just uh, whatever people can find online. Um, I haven't been, you know, taking the handouts as some hotels do uh, to get tours. Um, although it's very tempting. But luckily, uh, last year and the year before, I only had one day I wasn't booked. This year, I've already had a dozen that I wasn't booked. But it's a really weird year. Um, and I have a very full schedule. I've got one day open this month, and then I'm not got another opening until the 20th of next month. So it's filling up again, thank goodness. And so, uh, it, it, because it's the only game in town right now until I start getting these things selling. And I do have my POS system, like I said, kind of hot this week. So when you take groups out to tour, what do you, what do you like to show them? Well, <clears throat> I feel it's my goal to let them have a, a full Willamette Valley experience, to try to understand Willamette Valley in one day, which is absolutely clearly impossible. Um, but so what I do is I try to triangulate at least uh, different soil, soil, different experiences, different wines. And so I my favorite tour is a tour of the one hill. And so I go over here, uh, the hill that Domaine Serene and Domaine Druin on. I like to start at Holleran, who is the original vineyards plant in 1970 and 1971, um, right there, because it's historic. People love historic. And so I can I can start out maybe at Sokol Blosser, which is at uh, 250 feet, essentially. Then you go to 450 feet. Because again, when I was a kid, or previous to me even, we thought we couldn't ripen fruit above 450 feet elevation. So that was that knob right there, exactly at 450 feet elevation. Um, and then you go up to, uh, I like to go to Nisa, uh, which is about 650 feet elevation. And then I go up to Domain Serene or Domain Druin, well, I start there, finish there, um, at about 900 feet elevation, 800 feet, depends where you're at. Anyhow, and that's just, and, and, and so they get to try these estate 
wines and 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 most of those everybody nisa also has other like eola Hill, hills or shehala mountains or something uh wines that try side by side so i think they get really good breadth and depth of that by just elevation on one hill it doesn't cost a lot of gas so they get more time to actually enjoy the wines um but yesterday i picked up a people from allison the allison and spa great place but they wanted to do all eola amity i'm like okay so we went over to eola amity for four wineries which is Bizarre, but again, I'm I'm private and custom, and I work for whoever I'm working for, and that's the end of it. I just I try to orientate them in the morning with that, that thing I told you about the phenolics, and and then I just I just try to triangulate um, the places and, uh, and and give them you know diversity of, of, of wines, um, and of course, base it in science, share with much as I want, or as much as they want, excuse me, um, to learn about or not learn about, because I don't want to bore anybody. It's their day, you know. It's, it's, I'm all about support of them, because it's, against their special day. It's, I don't want to be impeding anything. Have you, how have you seen clients change in the, in, the, in the years you've been doing that? Are they asking different questions? Are they excited about different things? I haven't seen any change in clients on that. Uh, I would say there's a big change in our hospitality staff. Uh, when I first started, there was nobody that I knew of, with the exception of a few, um, that were competent. The people that were competent were because they were already professionals doing the winemaker, the owner, or whatever, and they were totally, obviously, knew it was up. But the people who'd work in the cell would be like, oh, do you want red or white? You know. And, and now, I mean, you get all these wonderful and incredible people that are like, oh, I just, I, you know, I was a multi-million dollar CEO, and now I'm pouring wine for people. It's like, that's awesome. And you know, people need to come around a little bit on a couple of things, like I talk about how the rootstock doesn't have flavor um, influences. But you know, other than that, uh, our hospitality is incredible. I mean, just, and now that we finally got some hotels, I mean, so the response of us here in Oregon has been a huge quantum leap in, in actually having quality hotels uh, that bring in these top end people. And then again, hospitality staff, they're ridiculously competent and sincere and really want to be there instead of just, well, I couldn't work at the, the blank place, you know. Um, tell me about other other sort of wine-related experiences. You have a lot of things listed here. Uh, obviously, Oregon Wine Camp, something you seem pretty proud of. Tell me about that concept. And, and that was cool. That was uh, um, what got me back out of Yauntville. Because I'll tell you truthfully, I just absolutely loved Yauntville. I think that is just amazing. It's, I would say as good as Oregon, and that's saying a lot. I just love Yachtville um, because I played bocce basically every day, and I love, love, love bocce. That's a, the only wine. That's the thing you never got to drop, put your wine down, and continue to play. And you know, my uh, we we won every competition. Me and my 88-year-old lady friend, who was a, used to be a professional bowler, and I'm a banker. I'm a good pool player. Anyhow, it was so much fun. I loved Yachtville, but again, I couldn't stay because my house. So what I'm trying to say, uh, the Sweeney family um, was interviewing for someone to put in Cherry Hill Vineyard Winery, and the idea was to do uh, a potential wine camp because they're renovating the, uh, the seasonal cabins. And I was like, oh, wine camp's a great idea. Um, and if somebody works the vineyard, then it's legal for them to stay in those seasonal cabins. And that's the way it was because it wasn't set up to be, you know, um, hotel or anything so they had to be kind of workers that was the, the kind of the concept to teach them stuff to go through the whole thing do a super high end uh, and it was really well received we actually had 100% of the people rebooked which is an insane number I mean that's just 
clearly insane. Um, but that's how well it was received, and it, it was wonderful. Uh, the Sweeney's no longer wanted to have people at their place, apparently, so they, they stopped that. But uh, uh, the concept grew, and it, it, was, it was totally viable, and enough people noticed that it was a viable thing to do luxury um, on-site learning um, because uh, Linfield College had already done the International Pinot Noir Celebration and so we knew there were people interested in that but you know an on-site wine camp for multiple days to get your hands dirty and and stuff was a new concept and I'm so glad it has because again when you have immersion like that you bring uh, tourism in or, or persons that, that learn that and then if you're really competent and they want to you know like, they don't want to do the I just found Jesus moment and they talk about all their friends and, and then that's, that's wonderful and my, my favorite thing is always exuberance so uh, you know you'll get people exuberant because they're like oh wow I touched the grapes I did this I but and great fantastic you know it's just wonderfully to be empowered and, and for me in my opinion I just think uh, Everybody should really understand wine uh, because it's food. It's, it's kind of critical in a couple of different ways. But we just have so much wine that's just cocktails that we seriously, most people don't even understand how to drink this stuff. And that's pathetic. And I, I think we should empower our people to what real wine is about. Uh, and again, I'm not a wine snob. Well, maybe I am. But the thing is, um, you know, I love a cocktail. I'm not against cocktail wines. It's just they should be labeled as such. I, a crisp wine is fine. I love a crisp wine. So the wine I want is not only just in my glass, but what am I eating? Mm -hmm. You know, or do I just, it's been a hard day and I need a couple of cocktail glasses. You know, and then afterwards I want to hang out with the people that I've spent my evening with, or just myself, doesn't matter. But I want to get sober while drinking. And, and these really complex, expensive wines that are just have this, all this complexity and sense of place and whatever is really fun. Because then you can be like, I'm, I'm not really interested in what that person's saying, but this is delicious. And I can, you know, I'm getting sober while drinking. I just, I love that aspect. And I think we need to allow people to have that so you can have wine. Wine could be that, that beverage again, like it is, where you don't actually have to get shit faced while enjoyment happens. You know, and, and, and that's a that's an aspect of, of consumption that should be known. Anything else of the kind of experiences here in Oregon or in California that stands out as particularly memorable to you? Anything else you've worked on or, or created or, or um, sort of pioneered? Well, I, I think this thing over here is pretty cool. Yeah, uh, this is a, a it, it uses a standard um, snake keg. Um, and so all wineries using the stainless steel kegs, you know, uh, but they don't have this, this device in here like a beer keg, and this is what you tap with a key keg. Um, and so the idea of this is just you can put the, the wine in, in this stainless steel uh, piece and then uh, use a different regulator and use argon gas, or you could use CO2 or nitrogen, but I don't think so, argon gas, and then displace the, the wine straight into uh, uh, whatever, because then, then you save all that bottling. And who really wants all the bottling? I mean, all you need is a beautiful tap. I've got, you know, I should, should have brought my taps up. Um, yeah, gorgeous. Um, and, and again, for me, this is an all-win situation because the, you don't have to spend the $2.50 or so per bottle or more now. I guess bottles have gone insane, so maybe it's three fifty. I don't know. Um, per bottle, and that's five drinks. So you can see how it's going to add a lot per glass alone. Um, and if we have no spoilage, which this would have no spoilage, and everybody wins. It goes back to the winery, and you know, five liters that goes a long way. And, and it's not a big deal for us as a as a winery, or or for that matter, a distributor to go through and, and pick up, you know, a couple empty kegs. And this is this is the only thing you need to own as, as a um, as a bar or a restaurant or whatever. And 
and I guess you don't even need to own this. I mean, you could just send this back. It's not a big deal because this is 100% stainless steel here, except for the, the it's all it's all sterilizable, and that's one of the problems that that you know the small guys like myself has. I, I don't have you know a sixty thousand dollar machine to clean you know a, a, a beer keg, uh, but I do have hot enough water in a, just a five gallon bucket, and I can sterilize this thing and then reuse it. Where did the, how did the idea come to you? Like everything else, there's a need. You know, like like the like everything else. There's a need. You know, there's a need for clean wine. There's a need for a wine cam. There's a, there's a need to reduce bottling and, and and throw away bottles. There's a need to to keep it reasonably priced, particularly at the 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 glass pour, because everybody fights for the glass pour. And so we're always kind of killing ourselves because we're undercutting our price point to get the glass pour because you want it out there. Because in my opinion, you know, the, the wine is made on premise. And so once you've had that amazing situation where Rich, I was with you, man, it was awesome. Can you believe we did that? That was so good, holy Christ. And we want to do that again. We had what wine, we had what beer, we had what, you know, that was a great cider, it doesn't matter, that was a great thing. And now I remember that product because it was a great experience and so I want everybody wants to be the glass pour mm -hmm. it's hard to get to the bottle price because when you get to the bottle pour then it's like you already know that or somebody's recommended that but again how do you get there and are you having again it's kind of sad how badly we just don't understand here in America that you know you get the wine list ahead of time so you pick the wine and then the, the chef is supposed to know what wine you picked and therefore adjust your chicken because the chicken's ripe or either cooked correctly or it's not it's all about the sauce to match the wine, and and we're just we're just missing that. And there's no reason to miss that. Prohibition happened a long time ago, so we can stop fighting about taste great, less filling, taste great. Stop. It's pilsner. Relax. You know we've gotten beyond the beer thing. Let's do that with the wine thing. You mentioned that you have wine to sell now uh, with Possessed. So tell me about the, that process for you, uh, get, getting wine on the market, and what 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 are you uh, looking forward to? Well, I'm looking forward to breaking even, um, recouping some of my negative investment. Uh, I would like to retire. And what does that look like? Well, I, I, I actually despise driving. I love people, uh, but uh, driving I don't like. I think it's just the, the most dangerous thing you can possibly do. And again, I don't like burning fuel or putting, buggering up our roads. Again, I love people. I love to share. I would love to be a fifth grade teacher. I always did want to be a fifth grade teacher, kind of, sort of. Uh, and so it's wonderful to do that with people that are passionate about wine. But uh, I would rather not be on the road. I'd rather be retired, uh, you know, and just blending together some wine and making a small amount of wine, the rest doing kind of what I did with the Red Hawk, um, Grateful Red, and putting together these wonderful blends. Uh, and, and that's kind of where I'd like to go with it personally. And just do a little less travel, a little more time with my, my lady in, 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 the, in the domestic situations that I have incurred, which, are, which is wonderful. Just, we had 28 days of people at this house, which has been great. We just, the grandkids just left two days ago, yesterday. Yeah, I guess yesterday. Anyhow, um, yeah, seems like two days ago already. But uh, it's, it's been a brilliant thing to you know, see the young ones. So how are you going to sell your wine? Good question. Uh, I got a POS uh, system online, so now I just have to sit there and figure out how much I'm a wine. I don't have that answer. I, I, I would love to find somebody to uh, to spearhead that. I really want to buy a, a get uh, get someone to, to be my salesperson. I, I had somebody, and she worked for I believe half a day, um, but I need a little little more time on target uh, than that, and, and get it going. And and I guess that person's supposed to be me, but um, anyhow. 
So obviously, the, uh, Michael Alberti, the Oregonian, wrote about you earlier this year. Um, tell me how that came about and sort of what, what was exciting to you about sort of getting, getting it published in Oregon. Yeah, I was very surprised, actually. It took, me, it took me a little bit by surprise. I knew my wines were good, and I sent, I sent three bottles in just to, uh, just to see what they did. And my, they're my, you know, my, my least expensive wines, uh, and I, I just killed it. I mean, really good ratings on them. And he's like, oh, wow, um, I looked at your website, and you know, I want to kind of do a story on it because I wear two hats. And so he wrote this story. I'm like... Cool, you know, and, and so then I put in an ad in the wine enthusiast to try to get it going. And, and uh, again, I'm not really sure what that means, but hopefully I have enough stuff to get it into some places um, because everybody's all about risk reduction. And obviously, I mean, that is just a beautiful label. So, and the wines are spectacular and clean. It just has to start. Um, I don't have a good answer for you, except, uh, you know, I, I sent in a couple of bottles, got a good rating, wanted to do a story, and so now I'm rushing to get this thing going, which I've, I, I've needed to be on it for a while. So tell me a little bit about uh, Oregon wine and how you've seen it grow. Obviously, you, you, had a, you see it from a variety of perspectives as, as a maker, as a grower, as a tour, a tour giver. Uh, how has the industry grown and changed in the time you've been aware of it? Well, you know, the biggest thing, again, is the, the fact that people know Oregon exists with wine. I still get a few people who go, I didn't even know you had wine until we got here. And I'm like, okay. Because, again, we're not marketing Oregon, and that's, and that's fine. Um, but, uh, again, it's going to get marketed. We're going to have a lot more people come in. I, I see us being maybe more important than Napa. I really see that. Um, it, because, again, we're cool climate. There's lots of amazing um, hot climate. And, and Napa really is kind of the quintessential amazing cool climate but there's lots of, of hotter climates that are and of course with some changing situations we may get more of that but um, these really nicely cool climates like this and again we're 60 miles by 40 miles here in this valley uh, we have so much pristine ground to grow it's just it's going to be crazy we need to figure out how to uh, fix our, our traffic situation because they're coming they're coming and they're coming and 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 it's going to happen so uh, we need more wonderful hotels i mean people all the time oh we couldn't get into multnomah falls who cares i mean it's a great bridge but beyond that there's lots of multnomah falls here you know if you really want to go see some waterfalls go to silver falls i mean my god what an amazing place you know but nobody even knows about that because again we as a state we're not trying to sell a state park pass right so um but it's coming, and, and um, there's, there's so much great viticultural areas, including over there in Silverton, uh, for people to have uh, a great experience. So um, I worry about, again, traffic, but uh, it, it's going to be a brilliant thing. Who doesn't want to be out where there's no mosquitoes? I mean, you know, my God. You know, and because there's no mosquitoes, there's no spiders. And because there's no spiders, you know, there's no spider webs, and there's no poisonous things and uh, you know who, who wants to worry about snakes I, I swear to God I had a guy the other day in my van and he said uh, I, I play golf every day I said great and he says it, it, but he says I always go snake gator ball snake gator ball as I'm walking I, it's my mantra I said what are you talking about he says yeah well we have gators and we have snakes and so there's poisonous snakes and there's gators so I'm always going is there a snake is there a gator there's my ball snakes snakes gators there's my ball snakes gators there's my ball you know and he keeps and I'm like, that's not a game of golf to me. No, thank you. You know, and he said, oh, yeah, it's, it's kind of bad. I said, what do you mean? Well, what's bad? He says, well, my, my, my wife's manicurist got killed the other day. I said, where? He said, in my backyard. I said, what? I swear to God, this is true. And he, and he, said, um, he said, yeah, well, she was wanting to take a selfie with this gator. And she knows better. She grows up there. I says, 
what? <laughs> and he, he said, seriously, I says, so you have this thing that can kill an adult human and you let it live in your backyard? I, I guess I'm an Oregonian. I mean, just come on, man. That's just not, you, know, you can't live in my yard if you're going to kill my manicurist. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Oh, what a, what a place we live in. I mean, who doesn't want to be here? I mean, and he was talking about how great his life was. He plays golf every day, snake eater ball. That's not life, you know, not to me. Um, so I, I've had dogs. I've never had ticks on my dogs. There are ticks here. So I, don't, I have dogs, and we go off trail. Where's the ticks? I've never had a chigger bite here. I've never not had a chigger bite. Basically, whenever I've gone off trail in my beautiful state of Kentucky, I love Kentucky, beautiful state, but a full-size tree in Kentucky, a 300-year-old tree is 60 feet tall. Here we get them 60 feet in 30 years. I mean, wow. So here they come. Here they come. Yeah. We can't hide it forever. I'm almost afraid to ask what else you see coming for the future of Oregon and Oregon wine. I worry about um, our, our wine industry being taken over by something that's, that's not so cool. Uh, like on my wine label, I, I put on Cool Climate Crafted because when I do my Syrah, and you have a Syrah that's 12.3 alcohol instead of 14.5, and they go, what the hell is this? What's cool climate, man? And it's, it's cool, it's, it's all right. Check it out, you'll freaking love it. You know, but we just, people just don't know what that is. And then I gotta put it in my, my bottle, because again, it's Oregon oak, you know, it's not French oak, it's not American oak, it's not Bulgarian oak, it's a different flavor. So be prepared, it's cool, it's delicious. You know, um, but if you don't have control of that media, then you're just, we're very vulnerable to something that may not be quite true. And it may, may, be, be, may become true because where a lot of money, a small nominal fee can change a lot of things. You talked a lot, a lot about sort of the future for yourself, obviously some goals you have. Uh, my goal is just to drink wine with my family. That's about it, really. Just, I don't care. I mean, I'm easy. I've done it. I've, I've had a good life. It's been wonderful. I've, I've many times sat, uh, sat back and go, you know, I, I got no money, but man, this is a nice night, and this is delicious wine, and look at this cool person I get to hang out with. And I had some neat people, I got to taste some wine that went, wow, that's brilliant, man. You know, I just, uh, it's been a great run. I, I just think I've kind of, I've kind of gone through it. And so we'll see what happens from here on out for me. Uh, I wish the best for everybody. I mean, that's kind of the deal. Uh, I wish nobody harm. I wish everybody to be able to do well, and I hope we can continue to still be what we have been, which is a very cooperative, uh, beautiful, interactive thing. And we've, we've raised everybody up because, you know, again, you ask me anything, I'll tell you, you know. And the same thing's been true with all of our people. You know, if I, if I go to a vineyardist and go, well, how'd you do this? Or what'd you do wrong? Or whatever, completely forthcoming. So we've all really garnered that love and that cooperation that we've had. Um, and I hope it continues because it's, it's to, to say that we, we, we're the best in the world when our oldest vines are in the 70s is absurd. That's absurd. And again, we got lucky by getting one correct clonal type. Uh, we didn't get the Chardonnay right, but now we got it. And uh, so here we go. Um, so let's not, get, let's not lose it. <laughs> you know? All right. Well, that's all the questions that I have for you. Uh, anything I didn't ask that I should have? Is there anything we didn't cover? today that you'd like to cover? My shoe size is... Uh, you have the resume in front of you to tell us the answer to this. I think that's about it. I'd like to see more people work with the Oregon Oak because, uh, in my opinion, every place on the planet should have some intact ecosystem. Um, and whole systems design is a brilliant thing, and so I think we need to have that in our wine industry. I think we need to have that very strongly because I want to keep our skinks. And if you know what that is, it's a big salamander. Um, and they live in, in, in leaf litter, and the leaf litter needs to be deep. 
And so these people that are trying to save Oregon oak, that's cool. But if you're not keeping the leaf litter, then it's not cool. You know, because that's the deal. It's the whole ecosystem. It's not a damn tree. I don't give a tra crap about the tree. I mean, I like the tree. I use it. It's delicious. But um, we need to keep ecosystems. We need to keep zoos, you know. And there's no reason we can't do that with our viticulture. There's no reason that we can't have, um, you know, little, and maybe even we just, we just do this with anybody that has more than 50 acres or something where you have to have 5% in a natural ecosystem. So we have our skinks. So we have places for our, our birds to be and whatever. Because we need that, those, those things we haven't even discovered, the asylum and the other things that are naturally breaking down our, you know, our, 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 our uh, leaf litter and um, detritus material and so forth. Because uh, who knows? What's, what's going to keep you know, the red blot disease away? You know, well, maybe it's right there. Maybe we already got it. You know? That's the reason why things aren't dying next to our oaks so much. You know, we were worried about some did. Well, I don't know why, but uh, maybe it's that. It's some little magical thing we haven't really discovered yet. So keep that intact. And there's no reason we can't do that with, with clean viticulture. Well, thank you so much for sharing your stories with us today, sharing your space with us, and, and uh, go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. With a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.